When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome, everybody, to an Intelligence Squared program that we are calling Unresolved Information Disorder, because, as we all know, we are living in a time that is uniquely exposed to the perils of disinformation, which certainly makes it timely to hold a debate asking what should be done about it. And because, at times, disinformation is a national security threat, we are delighted to be holding this debate in partnership with the Homeland Security Experts Group, a whole audience of experts. That is really something. And, of course, we have the experts on our stage. In this debate, we are going to be working through three questions, one at a time. And what we would like to do now is to ask you your opinion on these questions. Uh, the, The three questions we're going to be looking at are, should tech companies moderate misinformation that their users post? Does America need a governing body to regulate disinformation? And finally, was Twitter right to ban Donald Trump? I want to say, now let's welcome our debaters to the stage. First, former United States Secretary of Homeland Security and co-author of the Patriot Act, Michael Chertoff. Next, internationally recognized expert on disinformation and democratization and author of How to Lose the Information War, Nina Jankowitz. Now, please welcome Principal at Cornerstone Government Affairs, Visiting Fellow at the National Security Institute, former staff member on House Committee of Homeland Security, and Georgetown University professor, Charles Carruthers. And finally, former Assistant Secretary for Policy at the U.S. Department of Homeland Security under President George W. Bush, Stuart Baker. So let's get to the debate. We're going to go through three questions, and our first of three questions is this. Should tech companies moderate misinformation that their users post? Let's see where each of you is going to argue on this. On that question, Michael, are you a yes or a no? I'm a yes. Nina? I'm also a yes. Charles? I'm a yes. And Stuart? With an asterisk, I'm a no. So let's get, to, let's get to hearing the arguments on the question, should tech companies moderate misinformation that their users post? Michael, you are a yes. Tell us why. So first of all, again, the important thing is the question doesn't say they should be required. It simply says they should be allowed to. And that is really the function of anybody who edits any kind of publication. They have the right protected by the First Amendment to decide what gets published and what doesn't get published and to curate accordingly. We don't make them do it, but we don't prevent them from doing it. In this case, responsible social media platforms should evaluate whether something really is misinformation or disinformation. They've got to use their editorial judgment, just like every editor of every news organization does. And if they believe it's false and misleading and even harmful particularly, then they should take it down because that is part of their responsibility to their users and their customers. Finally, it's important to have terms of service that lay out the parameters of what is permitted and what's not permitted so that people who actually use the site are warned in advance that if they step into a a zone that is inappropriate, they will be taken down. Thank you, Michael Chertoff. Uh, Nina Jankwitz, you are next. You are also a yes on the question. I am. Uh, You know, disinformation and misinformation have affected the functioning of our democracy. They've affected public health. And they are affecting public safety. Just uh, a couple of weeks ago in Michigan, a man who was radicalized by the QAnon conspiracy theory killed his wife, the family dog, and injured his daughter. This has very real-world consequences, and I think we like to think of the things that happen 
happen online as uh, staying online, but in reality, disinformation is causing offline consequences. And as Secretary Chertoff said, tech companies are private entities. They all moderate to some degree. They all have terms of service that we sign up to when we log on to share pictures of our kids or our dogs and cats. You know, we sign up to be moderated by them. Even Truth Social moderates, despite uh, despite saying otherwise, they've been found to actually be taking down some posts that are critical of President Trump. So I think we should all note that. Um, and I think also important is that, you know, equal and transparent enforcement of those rules, which the tech companies to this point have not done, would really reduce the uproar about moderation on those platforms. So I'd like to see all of that. And, you know, my final point is that content moderation about dis and misinformation doesn't have to equal removal of speech. We can put friction on disinformative posts, reducing their amplification. Uh, freedom of speech does not necessarily mean freedom of reach, right? Uh, so we're not talking about removing speech. Again, um, there are a lot of other elements to content moderation that we can be talking about, and it is incumbent on the social media platforms to be, uh, to be moderating the speech that users are posting. Thank you, Nina. Now, um, Charles, you were going to be next, but given the lineup here, in the interest <laughs> of challenging monotony, I'm going to have Stuart jump in and then come to you. you go sure. To okay. Sounds, sounds good. So, Stuart, you are a no on this question. I'm, I'm a no. Obviously, there is is and must be some forms of content moderation. Right? Uh, and everybody does it, including Truth Social. But the content moderation system we have now is basically there are four companies that tell us what we can say to our friends, to our family, to our coworkers. They decide, and they say, as, as uh, Mike Chertoff said, not only is it something we choose to do, but it's our First Amendment right to tell you what you cannot say. What the hell is that? This is the First Amendment to censor? That's, that's the right we're talking about? Uh, and the idea that these four companies, right, Twitter, YouTube, Google, uh, uh, Facebook, and huh, TikTok, whose parent company's CEO apologized to the Chinese Communist Party for not doing a good enough job of censoring the views of people who disagreed with the Chinese Communist Party. There go, those are the four companies that'll tell us what we can say. No. <laughs> Thank you, Stuart. All right, Charles, it turns to you. You are a yes. Uh, tech companies have a, a responsibility to not only their users, but to, to the nation to promulgate information uh, that is healthy, that, that, that is truthful, and without doing so, severely, severely impacts not only our national security, uh, but the health and, and safety of, of U.S. citizens. So, for example, we saw with the COVID-19 uh, pandemic, things went rampant with misinformation on various uh, social media sites. Um, certain ones did a, a better job than others in um, taking down that misinformation and probably saved, probably saved a lot of lives. Uh, others who have a more, um, you know, political agenda, think like 4chan, um, those, um, that content stayed up. Um, also, I would like to say that there's an economic incentive for the social media companies to, you know, do really well content moderation. What I mean by that is this. If you have greater users that trust your platform, that think the information that you're promulgating is true, then more than likely you're going to have greater ad buys, right? So it's within their own self-interest to self-moderate and to self-moderate well. Thank you, Charles. So let's, let's chat about this. Um, Michael, I want to take it back to you since you are our first speaker and um, bring to you the main contrary point that came from the sole uh, no vote on this uh, conversation, that uh, it's, it's a no with an asterisk, but the, the no is based on the fact that the content companies would be given enormous power, that they would be acting as a, as a government in their own without checks on what they're doing. So can you respond to that? Sure. So first of all, let me say this. 
Um, there are issues about antitrust and whether we have too much of a monopoly by certain companies, which have much broader implications than just moderation. It has to do with commercial advertising, the power over companies that use the media to reach people. And that's a discussion for another debate. But the reality is it's like a popular newspaper or a popular channel, let's say Fox News, I use that as an example. Um, they don't have an obligation to air whatever somebody says, I want to have my voice heard. They may choose to do that to balance, but they may choose not to do it. And the First Amendment does protect the right of a speaker to curate what his platform is used to speak on. Some of you will remember there used to be cases involving license plates. I think there was one, live free or die. And some people said, I don't agree with that. I want to put a piece of tape over the slogan. And the courts upheld that under the First Amendment. You can't be required to propagate a position you disagree with or you know to be false. Now, obviously, the speaker has a right to start his own platform or to go to another platform. And as Charles pointed out, there are a number of different platforms out there, some of which are very sketchy. But if you want to put yourself out there, it'll reach an audience. But the key here is for the companies to be able to exercise their right to control what their platforms are being used to. And if we're concerned about too much market power, we ought to deal with that as a distinct issue. All right, Stuart, you're going to get a chance to do more talking as a result of your position, because yeah. I would like you to respond to uh, what Mike had to say. Yeah, I, 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 with respect, that's not the world we live in. I mean, to say, let's not talk about the fact that there's only four companies that tell us what we can say, because that's an antitrust issue, and we'll talk about that some other day. This is the question: Is should we allow them to do this? Uh, uh, and and to say it's just like Fox News, and anybody who wants to walk in is not allowed to broadcast on Fox News. I, what is there a shortage of electrons that I didn't hear about? All of this stuff can be uh, transmitted, uh, and they're not doing it because they don't have enough bandwidth. They're doing it because they have chosen certain people that they don't want to hear speak and they don't want us to hear them speak. And I, I, I do not think that that is a, a power that should be conveyed just to four private sectors uh, companies, one of which is not even an American company. Nina. Yeah, I, I think, uh, and, and I'm curious to see if Charles would agree with me here. Um, as a woman, uh, I would say that there is definitely not enough moderation happening on the internet. People can say whatever they want, and frankly, when they say it to women or people of color, uh, there's very little moderation happening. In my own experience, I've probably sent thousands and thousands of reports to the companies for uh, things that expressly violate terms of service. Literally thousands and thousands? Literally thousands of reports. I don't know if anybody in this room knows. I, I was recently the uh, subject of a, of a disinformation campaign and hate campaign myself. Literally thousands of reports have been sent to the companies on my behalf. And I would say fewer than, I don't know, 200 have been actioned for things that were violently threatening me and my family. Um, things that were lies about uh, the work that I was meant to do at the Department of Homeland Security. Um, and, you know, again, things that were uh, expressly violative of those terms of service. I don't think the companies are doing enough. More from Intelligence Squared U.S. when we return. You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. Welcome back to Intelligence Squared U.S. Let's get back to our debate. If we did not allow social media or tech companies to self-moderate, then what would things look like? Mm. Every single election season, African-Americans are disproportionately targeted by outside actors trying to influence us not to vote, not to participate in the electoral process. That's shameful, and it happens every two years. Thankfully, because of content modera moderation, some of those posts are taken down. They're still up, but some of them are, are, are taken down. We can't allow the social media companies to not moderate. They have to do this. 
because it goes against our grain for not only our, um, our, our preserving our democracy and our electoral process, but it disenfranchised certain groups of American citizens. Can I so just Stuart, add one two-finger there? Please do. Often the, the speech that is most moderated, and this is backed up by research, uh, the speech that is most moderated is not against the majority. It, it is against people of color, it is against women and, and those that are not able to, to take, take their voice and speak it out. Uh, it, it's those people that are most moderated online, not, not the folks who are actually breaking the rules. In about four minutes, I'm going to come to the audience for a question. So please, if you'd like to take part in that, get ready for that. Stuart, um, all, three of your, uh, uh, the, the, all three of the debaters who are taking the opposite side of the question uh, have used the word responsibility. And, and we've now just heard two examples of what that responsibility would be. Now, you argued that there, the, the enormity of these companies is to some degree concerns you about their having this role, but the enormity of these companies would seem to amplify their responsibility as well. So I'd like you to take on your perception of what the responsibility of these companies is to, the, to their users and to, actually to the culture. So that takes me to the asterisk that I mentioned at the beginning. I, um, you know... We take it for granted that this is a brand new problem. It turns out that when the telegram was invented and Western Union became our telegram service provider, they said the same thing that the platforms are saying today. Hey, this is our platform. You want to send messages about strikes, you're not going to be allowed on the platform. If you're Associated Press, you can send your stories because you give us good coverage. If you're United Press, if you're United Press International, we don't like your stories, we're not going to carry your stories uh, over the telegram. And the outrage from people in the benighted 19th century was loud and strong, and they were turned into, because they had a monopoly, a natural monopoly, into a common carrier, which meant that they had to have non-discriminatory rules about what they were going to do. That was their responsibility. They had to make it clear what their rules were. They had to carry everybody subject to non-discriminatory rules that could be enforced by oversight and regulators. Uh, We are not in that world now. Michael? So here's the problem with that. Stuart's confusing two things. There are common carriers like the telephone company and Western Union, and they do have an obligation. They have to be, they don't even have visibility actually into the content of what they transmit necessarily. They have to open it to all comers, good, bad, or indifferent. But that's not what the platforms are. The platforms are content providers. In fact, their business model involves providing content that will stimulate people to buy things so they can get advertising revenue. In that sense, they are like a newspaper or like a television show. People do not get to simply say, I want to be on your television show, therefore you have to let me say whatever I want to say. So I think in this case, responsibility means, and you can certainly, you know, there are more than four platforms to post things on. There are four big ones, but there are a lot of other ones. The key is to give them the power they have under the Constitution, the First Amendment, to determine what they want to put out there, and particularly to take down things that might be violent, that might cause harm, like drink Clorox to deal with COVID, or that might be simply grossly defamatory. But didn't you say that you're, they had a First Amendment right to take down any damn thing they wanted to? Yeah, that's okay. Called, so that's called I, I, the First it's, Amendment. It's not misinformation, not special stuff. It's whatever they choose. Okay, I'd like to go to the questions. Does anybody have a question who would like to jump into the conversation? My name is John O'Connor. We've mentioned the word responsibility, but uh, the word liability hasn't come up. Mm. Um, Nina rightfully points out some degree of inconsistency. Um, some might say a whimsy with respect to application of rules. Do any of you believe there should be more liability in a bright line sense than just this amorphous responsibility? Question mark, question mark. That was a model question. I congratulate you. Thank you. I, I, I'm going to record that and play it at all of our debates. That was terrific. Who would like to take that question on? Oh, well, this is a whole can of worms, right? Because what we're getting at here is Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act, and we can have an entire debate about that. Um, I, I come down somewhere in the middle. I think Communications Decency Act, which says that the, the platforms are not liable for the content that their users post, uh, is not adequate for the Internet age. Um, however, what we have seen in places like Germany, where there is a law that makes the companies liable if they do not remove uh, illegal content with 
within a, a certain period of time. We've seen the over-removal of speech there. Um, and so my, my answer would be, <laughs> we need something in between, right? We don't want to encourage the companies to just be flatly removing speech, because as I said before, that often affects women and minorities more than it affects uh, the majorities of countries. Um, but as I also said, this is not just about removing speech. There are, there are in-betweens adding friction, uh, reducing amplification. You can put that out there. You have the right to make that Facebook post, to put that tweet, but you don't necessarily have the right to, to go viral or to have, you know, uh, millions and millions of people feeding off of that or to make money off of it, which frankly a lot of disinformers do, make money off of, uh, off of the lies that they, they are putting out there as we saw with the Alex Jones defamation trial recently. Stuart, I'm giving you special space again as the three against one position. Why don't we try liability for the people who are sending the uh, hate speech, right? Uh, uh, if they're sending threats to you, Nina, I, uh, they can be prosecuted. No, Why would be we... my defamation lawyer, Stuart? I'll be... <laughs> it's a deal. All right. <laughs> <laughs> and that concludes debate on our first question. So let's move on to the second question. Uh, the question is, does America need a governing body to regulate disinformation? Let's uh, start with you, Stuart. Are you a yes or a no on that? Oh, this one's easy. No. And Charles? I'm a no. And Nina? I'm a yes. Okay. And finally, Michael? No. Ah, all right. So, Nina, you're in the three against one position. But let's, uh, let's start uh, our first debater on this one will be Stuart. Again, Stuart, you are a... No on the question, does America need a governing body to regulate disinformation? You have 90 seconds to tell us why. The problem with having a government body that tells us what is misinformation and what is not is that governments cannot make those decisions without letting politics interfere in the decision. Uh, uh, Government is about politics, and uh, when they decide something is misinformation, it will be informed by their political interests. And I, you know, I would uh, look at, we talked a little bit about the CDC. Uh, when they started offering us advice, we all wanted to believe them, and we wanted to believe that everything they said was true. And the first words out of their mouth practically was, you don't need a mask, followed six or eight weeks later by, oh, yeah, maybe you should get a mask. And the reason they told us we didn't need a mask is because they thought that health workers ought to have the mask. But they didn't tell us that. They, they didn't say they work, but you shouldn't get them. They said, you don't need them. Uh, that repeated itself time and again, even with the CDC, even with something like medical information. I think it's really dangerous to ask the government to make these calls across the board. All right, thank you. I'm going to skip to the yes for a little back and forth. So, Nina, your 90 seconds. I am shocked and, and ask myself every day, how is it that an industry with such power, like social media, with such an impact on our everyday personal and professional lives, we don't know how it works, really. What we know about it comes from researchers like me, uh, based on the data that the social media platforms give us access to, and whistleblowers. I believe what we need is a federal internet commission, kind of like we have the FCC and the FAA, if a plane's crashing over and over, we're going to go investigate that airline, right? I think we've had a lot of plane crashes with social media. Uh, and I think we need to make effective policy based on, uh, fr frankly, you know, information that is unbiased. Right now, we have so much polarization over what's going on with social media that we need to, we need to kind of pull back the lid and understand that a little bit more. And again, uh, this wouldn't be about removing speech. It would be about understanding the algorithms that Secretary Chertoff uh, mentioned before. It would be understanding the business practices and the content moderation decisions that are made. I believe all Americans need to know that, and it would increase the trust that, uh, that Charles was talking about before. So that is what that regulatory body would do, in, in my opinion, and then eventually enforce some rules that would come later down the pike. Charles, it is your turn. You are a no. I, I can't believe it says, I agree with Stuart Baker. <laughs> uh, I, I, think Stuart, I think Stuart is absolutely right. He's, he's spot on. Um, you know, do we really want to add another layer of bureaucracy on the already, you know, bureaucratic United States government? That's number one. Second, um, you know, Nina mentions polarization. So who are going to be the arbiters of truth here? 
right? How are we going to honestly determine what's true, what's not, especially in, in 2022? I, I think you honestly would have an easier time mopping the ocean than getting individuals to decide uh, together what's true or what's not. Michael Chertoff, you are a no. So full disclosure, I co-chaired a committee for the Homeland Security Advisory Council that actually recommended not having a a governance board, a DHS, for disinformation. Thank you. We appreciate the disclosure. Thank you. And and I agree agree with the fact that we don't want to have the government telling us what is true or not true or disinformation or not in not disinformation. Here's a thought experiment. Imagine Donald Trump is appointing the members of that board. And every time someone puts something online that he lost the election in 2020, it has to get taken down. I mean, we could live in under Putin if we wanted to live that kind of experience. We don't need to live it in the US. Now, that doesn't mean there can't be any rules. I think you could have Congress create neutral rules, for example, Um, saying things like you have to disclose who actually posted something or you have to disclose your, your, your algorithms or you have to disclose what your terms of service are. But those would be rules of general application. They would not be rules that are designed to govern the content of the information you put on. But who would enforce the rules? Well, the answer is if you violated the rule, if it was a statute, then presumably the Department of Justice would sue you, get an injunction or something of that sort. I mean, there are civil ways you can do that. But the point is it wouldn't be about content. It would be about disclosure and transparency. Okay, well, let's mix it up. Uh, let's uh, start the conversation. Nina. Uh, I got to clear something up here, Secretary Turtoff, and, and I, uh, uh, I'm, I'm hesitant to even open this can of worms, but uh, full disclosure, I was the chair, yeah. uh, the executive director of the Disinformation Governance Board, and the Disinformation Governance Board was never going to tell people yeah. what was true or false online. It was an internal coordination body meant to, as you all know, DHS is a huge, sprawling organization meant to herd some government cats. That's all it was meant to do. And the fact that we're even talking about today, (laughs) that it might have decided what was true or false online is extremely sad to me. No, and you're absolutely right. And the reason we decided to uh, actually suggest it not be used is because the the title of it, Governance Board, conveyed a misimpression. Sure. Having the government coordinate to play by the rules is appropriate. But having something that suggests even erroneously, that the government's going to govern speech is a very bad idea. Yeah, yeah. The name was bad. I did not come up with it. But, uh, (laughs) but... The fact that, that then, you know, we said, all right, uh, we're, we're not going to put this, this body forward and address this issue within the Department of Homeland Security, which has so many equities that cover, uh, you know, disinformation at the border related to natural disasters with our elections. It was a very sad moment. For all me. right. I got to get Stuart and Charles into yep. this. Um, so, so, Stuart, you made a, a sort of philosophical argument. Um, well, it's also a practical argument. You just said the government can't be doing politics. And uh, Charles, you also made a practical argument that we just don't need one more layer of bureaucracy. So let's, let's dig a little bit into what you're talking about and again, let Nina respond. So uh, you, why don't you take that first, Charles? I, I just, th- this would be a hard sell to the American people in, in, in this day of age, given how politically divisive our nation is, right? No matter how you define it, how you spin it, at the end of the day, you know, there are going to be certain aspects of the American populace that will call this the truth police. That, that's, that's, the per, that's going to be the perception. Then on top of that, you're going to formally establish this within the United States government. So then we have to ask ourselves, okay, how is oversight going to be conducted on this? How can we possibly be um, unbiased in conducting oversight and trying to regulate disinformation? You're going to open up a can of worms here by establishing this, and then, you know, it's going to be a real sticky situation because I don't see how you reconcile this with protecting our, our, our First Amendment. All right, let's stack up some no's before we come back to you, Nina. So, Stuart. So, I, I, Nina, with deepest sympathy, I want to say welcome to Washington. <laughs> I, you didn't deserve what happened to you, but the reason it happened is not because coordination of rumor control uh, is a bad thing, but because in the last 10 years, it's not just what the government is saying, which we've all learned to listen to the government and to take it with a grain of salt, to, to ask, well, what's their motivation in telling us this in particular? And we're all comfortable with that. But 
we're not comfortable with the idea that no one can say anything that contradicts it, which is unfortunately uh, under the rule of the four companies, pretty much how uh, they administer their misinformation practices. And that's why it provoked such a reaction. Uh, and it should, we shouldn't be in the business of saying this is what can't be said. And I'm afraid people understandably read it that way. And I I understand that people are rightfully skeptical of government intervention uh, in in this area. Again, that's not what I think should happen, could happen, wouldn't have taken the job if that were the description. But I want to talk a little bit more about uh, what Charles was saying, um, that this isn't about, uh, you know, you don't want another layer of bureaucracy here. I think we actually do need uh, a little bit more bureaucracy in coordinating the efforts of our government related to counter-disinformation activities. Right now, they are are happening in parallel across the government, at the DOJ, within the IC, at the Department of State. Well, where we left to the DHS was to encourage coordination among the existing institutions, including the General Counsel and the Privacy. But, you know, one thing is when you create a new organization, as Charles has suggested, it winds up looking for a mission. And the area of free speech is an area that's really fraught in this respect. One thing I will also observe to people, this is not a new problem. Go back to the founding of the nation. The Burr-Hamilton duel was fought over scurrilous newspaper articles accusing one of the combatants of fathering an illegitimate child. This kind of news has always been out there, and we've relied upon the First Amendment as the principal defender. Now, again, I'll emphasize where that has changed is the use of algorithms, because algorithms allow you to turbocharge misinformation by using data that has been taken or purchased or even stolen from you in order to figure out what are your particular hot buttons. And that's an area where I do think there is more room for some kind of rule or regulation as opposed to the content itself. So do you have something... Sort of that, a concept for that? Yeah, the concept would be simply to require the disclosure of data that is taken from private individuals that is being used to communicate information to them, and also disclosure so researchers can look at algorithms. So there could be a, a way of people understanding I'm getting this message because someone has looked at all my job searches or all my online searches for the last year and they figured out I'm looking for a particular job. Nina, would that be enough? No, I mean, what we're talking about there is essentially micro-targeting, right? And that's that's part of the problem. That's part of the problem, but it's not the entirety of the problem. Um, a lot of times what we see is, is networked disinformation where there is uh, coordination and amplification of the most enraging material. People are knowingly lying because they know the most engaging content online is the most enraging content, right? Um, that gets more at the algorithmic question there. Uh, should the companies be promoting things that are inciting violence and, and, and hatred um, that are based in lies? Uh, but it, it's, a, it's a broader question than either one of those two things. Um, and again, I think when it comes to questions of public safety, public health, uh, and the functioning of our democracy, there is that responsibility that we were talking about before. And someone needs to conduct the oversight about the content moderation decisions that are being made not only by algorithms, but by humans. Then we won't have this polarization, this uh, Ministry of Truth conversation because we'll be able to pull back the lid and see what's going on. More from Intelligence Squared US when we return. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Welcome back to Intelligence Squared U.S. I'm John Donvan. Let's get back to our debate. We're going to go to a question in a moment. Is anybody ready to, to jump in? Uh, Suzanne Spaulding from the Center for Strategic and International Studies. I want to ask if the government is being told to be hands-off 
Are we unilaterally disarming in the face of a serious adversary threat that will amplify domestic voices? With the implication being, should there be the government? Should the government be doing something? Should there? The question: uh, should, Doesn't a governing body need to so, regulate so the, disinformation? The, would be yes. You're a, so you're the on, answer is: What do you yeah, mean my, by hands off? If you're asking me, should the government censor and shut things down? The answer is no. Should the government say disclose publicly and loudly? This uh, is coming from Vladimir Putin sitting in Moscow pretending to be John Donovan. Yes, the government can do that. The government can correct and amplify the correction. What it can't do, except in some specific cases, is shut it down and, and stop it. That's already the law, basically. If you are a media organization owned or controlled by Vladimir Putin, you need to register and disclose that when you send out your news articles. And, and, and to, your, to your first question, which was rescinded, um, absolutely yes. Uh, uh, Russia, Russia's doing that right now, and other, other state actors and non-state state actors. Um, but when it comes to foreign elements um, doing just as you suggested, like CISA's actively um, engaging and trying to mitigate that right now. So if only it were so simple, right, that we could say, Here, here's a Russian, Russian entity, they're spreading Russian disinformation, Americans be warned, right? Unfortunately, the Russians, the Iranians, the Chinese have gotten a lot smarter over the past six years while we're, we've been sitting here treading water. What they are doing now is more information laundering rather than just putting something out through trolls or bots or through RT or, or CGTN. They are finding willing individuals, either witting or unwitting, amongst us who are happy to amplify those narratives. And that's where we get into the domestic disinformation problem. Uh, I agree, you know, Suzanne, if we are throwing our hands up and saying there's very little that we can do only if it's clearly foreign disinformation we are winning Vladimir Putin's battles for him, and that is very scary to me. But I think Suzanne's question also implied, should there be a government agency that is directly involved in response? Yes. <laughs> All right, John, it depends on what you mean by response. If you mean should a government agency be tasked with detecting this and then announcing that, in fact, this is coming from Putin, I think that's perfectly fine. If it's you have to take it down, assuming it's not something that's illegal, like child pornography, then I think that goes too far. Charles, last word for you in this round. I, I, I agree with the secretary, 100%. In that case, Stuart. I'm, I'm there too. That concludes conversation and debate on the second question. <laughs> We're now going to do the third and the final question. The question is, was Twitter right to ban Donald Trump? Let's uh, look at where you stand on this question. Charles, can you go first? Yes. Stuart? <laughs> no. And Nina? Yes. And Michael? Yes. So we have three S's and one... Oh, Stuart, you, you get that little extra time again. Yeah, somebody will do it. Some people will do anything with a little extra speaking time. <laughs> All right, we're going to ask Charles to go first on the question, was Twitter right to ban Donald Trump? You've got 90 seconds, Charles. Uh, thank you. Obviously, I, I support the, the, the First Amendment. Um, I do not think politicians uh, should be removed from social media platforms unless they incite violence, unless they incite harm. Um, and I am of the opinion that former President Donald Trump did just that, more especially with his tweet on December 19th. That's where I am. Thank you. And uh, next would be, um, well, let's go to you, Stuart. You're the no. Okay. So I, I think that, I look, he's the first Republican candidate for president in 40 years that I haven't voted for twice now, and I sort of hope I don't have a third opportunity. Uh, but when you say he can't speak, you're not just disrespecting him and showing contempt for him. You're showing contempt for the people who voted for him, who believe uh, what he says and who want to hear from him. Uh, and that's a serious, serious thing to do. And before we decide we're just going to take him out, going to take somebody who has that kind of um, responsibility out of the public square, you better have a good reason. And, you know, Twitter's reason was he's inciting violence. That was on January 8th that they said that. That wasn't January 6th. Whatever he had incited, and, and you know, the, the causation chain is what it is, uh, was over. And what they said was, we think he's inciting future violence. He's glorifying future violence. And the case for that, well, no, where is that violence that he incited, uh, is really weak. 
And so the idea that we took him off uh, because he was inciting violence and then realized that he wasn't actually doing something that directly incited violence, I think uh, discredits the decision. Yeah, um, so again, this is a decision of the platform. It would be a different answer, perhaps, if we said the government required him to be taken off. I would also observe he then started his own platform. I don't know how successful it is, but he wasn't deprived of his ability to speak. But the bottom line is incitement to violence, uh, as you know, Oliver Wendell Holmes said, you can't shout fire in a crowded theater. This takedown occurred a few days after January 6th, which I have to say, based on the public evidence, looks an awful lot like an insurrection, which he fueled with his statements. Now, did he spell out, oh, I want you to go kill Mike Pence, or oh, I want to overthrow the U.S. government? No. But let me tell you, I mean, he grew up in the milieu of New York, the construction industry, and it was dominated by the mob. And I investigated and prosecuted the mob on the stuff that he was involved in. And you know what mobsters do when they want someone killed? They don't go, go kill so-and-so. They go, this guy's a problem. And then the guy winds up dead with his cement shoes in the, in the East River. So what Trump was doing was saying things that the people at Twitter legitimately had a concern about, whether they were mind readers or not, legitimately had a concern about was fueling another round of violence. And when, when Trump said in one of the tweets, I'm not going to the inauguration, they were concerned that was being read as there ain't going to be an inauguration because there's going to be round two of this. We were dealing with a very fraught situation. Again, I'm not saying the government had the power to do this, but what I am saying is it's reasonable for Twitter to say this is too close to incitement. Yeah, yeah, and the question is about whether Twitter was right to do it as opposed to the government's role. But Stuart, I'm going to let you do the three against one jump back into the conversation. Yeah, so I, I, you're right. That, that's what he said. This is the two tweets that Twitter objected to and said they were glorifying violence. I'll read them out. Uh, the 75 million great American patriots who voted for me will have a giant voice long into the future. They will not be disrespected or treated unfairly in any way, shape, or form. And then to all those who have asked, I will not be going to the inauguration on January 20th. Now, Twitter says that's a glorification of violence. If, if you've been a court of appeals judge, if a district court wrote an opinion saying that's a glorification of violence and I'm enjoining speech uh, because of the glorification, how long would it take you on appeal to reverse that decision? You're absolutely right, but here's again, I can keep coming down to this difference. For the government to do it, is a different standard than for me as an individual to say, this is my platform, my free speech rights are, I don't want to be in any way, shape, or form being seen as endorsing or promoting violence. Those are two dramatically different standards. Okay, I want to call, I want to, I want to call a timeout because Nina did not get her 90 seconds. Uh, yes. <laughs> so I would agree with what Charles and Secretary Chertoff have said. I, I would also say that, you know, we, we have these different standards for politicians, right? Uh, because it is in the public interest to hear what they, uh, they're saying. I actually think that politicians should be held to a higher standard of speech because of the platforms that they have. And yes, Donald Trump got his, his poor little Twitter account shut down, but he still was the president of the United States, the most powerful man in the world from January 8th to January 20th, and had, a, had plenty of, uh, of, you know, a stage, an audience to hear him speak. Um, I think even if this had happened earlier, that there would have been plenty of room and, and kind of oxygen and amplification of the words that he, he said. He could, you know, call cameras to the Oval Office at any time. Uh, when you are inciting to violence, and maybe not in those two tweets, Stuart, but certainly we could look back uh, earlier, before January 26th in December, as well as during the summer of 2020, uh, during the George Floyd protests and, and the president's response to that, that uh, polarized us, that, that led extremists to, uh, to frankly, um, commit violent acts, not only in the Capitol, but in, in several other instances before that. So again, I believe that politicians should be held to a higher standard than the rest of us, and that those terms of service should be applied equally to everybody. Charles, you, you and, you and the fellow, your fellow uh, yes votes are making the argument primarily that uh, his, his behavior on Twitter was an incitement to violence, and that justifies his Twitter's decision to take him off. And while Stewart has some pushback on that, he also made a second argument that none of you have responded to, which is it's an insult to the people who voted to them. It's a slight to the people who voted for, for Donald Trump to have him removed. I'm curious what your take is on that argument. My, my take is, is this, that the individual um, whom you voted for um, and wanted to be president of the United States um, did a disservice to the country. You know, when a politician 
um, uses a platform that can reach millions, if not billions, of individuals and says that the election is fraudulent, that uh, the results uh, should not be trusted, how do you not think that those remarks aren't going to galvanize individuals into thinking that democracy is now in question, that democracy is being challenged? And then in same said tweet, he says, come to D.C., it's going to be wild. And if I'm one of his supporters, you know, to Secretary Trithel's point, I'm taking that as, you know, a call to action. And, and that just, that's exactly what happened. And the January 6th Select Committee methodically spells this out. There's testimony and, and depositions uh, from, from individuals who said that they were directly galvanized to come to D.C. to storm the Capitol because President Trump told them to do so. So, so you can't ignore that. So, yeah. So while Stewart is saying it's an insult to his followers, you're saying the fact that his followers would believe and trust him is the issue. But I want to take to Michael also Stewart's point that taking Trump, Twitter's decision to take Trump offline was a, a slight to the people who voted. So I don't agree with that. You're not taking the followers offline. You're not even taking them off if they retweet something. But if someone, for example, decides they want to tweet pictures of child pornography, uh, among other things, the fact that people follow that individual doesn't mean that if you take him down for violating the law that you're insulting the followers. The followers are totally free to follow Trump on, on uh, uh, whatever he has, Truth Social, whatever he's got. They're not flocking there, but that's their decision. They're not being disqualified because they followed him. So I think this is an appropriate response. And I think as Charles pointed out, it comes against the context of a lot of dog whistles like it's going to be wild, like those right-wing you know, people who ran over that woman in Charlottesville are good people. I mean, when you look in context, the people who run Twitter have to say, do we really want to continue to let someone propagate calls to action that involve violence and overthrowing the U.S. government? Followers are free to follow him elsewhere, uh, but the, the speaker isn't free. So, so Stuart... You're, you have not been persuasive with your opponents on that particular point, so I want to know where you are on that in terms of their responses to it and how strongly you want to defend that point. So I, I, it's true that his followers can continue to speak, but they wanted to listen. They wanted to hear what he had to say, and this is a rebuke to their views. It, it is saying your views are not even acceptable in you know, decent company. Uh, and, and I think that... If you're going to say that, you better be sure. And we talked about the responsibility of the president, and he, he was not responsible. But everybody up here agreed with that uh, Twitter had a responsibility and that they should explain themselves, that we need more visibility into their decision processes. They gave us visibility. They said our determination is that those two tweets the one about how his followers won't be disrespected and he's not showing up for the uh, um, inauguration, that are, they are likely to inspire others to replicate the events of January 6th and that there are multiple indicators they're being received and understood as encouragement to do so. And yet, in fact, there has not been any well, such... Well, the absence of evidence doesn't mean that well, it would have, would have they, not happened. Nobody, they, they said, we're worried you're going to show up on, on Inauguration Day and cause a problem. Nobody did. Well, this it's is, great that the U.S. No, but, government but, but, arrested but, but, a bunch of people. Yeah. This, this is their, their, their implausible um, excuse to ban him. And then, what are we going to do? Is, is, is he being punished with a timeout? Uh, or is, is this something where we still think he is about to incite violence? He hasn't. So, so you, you just said, they, I think you implied they were looking for an excuse to ban it. Yeah, of course they were. Why didn't they earlier? Precisely for the reason we talked about. There are very good reasons for somebody who has that kind of following to leave them up. You know, frankly, I, I'm not even sure it's good for him to be on Twitter. It gives us an insight into his mind that's, you know, not the most appetizing thing. Uh, and we all should, you know, we understand him and Elon Musk better than anybody else of similar prominence. Uh, and I think Twitter has done us a public service by letting these folks air themselves. And that's one of the reasons why they left him up. I think they should have done it. And now they're stuck. They don't know when, when are they going to let him back in? 
So I, I just want to ask the panel in general, whoever wants to jump in on this, do you, I think Stuart is implying that while Twitter said he was banned for these two tweets, he was banned for four years of tweets and it the, broke the camel's back. Does, do you all, does anybody feel that that's actually what happened? And is it some, somehow disingenuous for Twitter to cite these two tweets as the reason? I, I can't read the mind of the people in Twitter, but it seems to me it's hard to evaluate this without recognizing a big thing happened on January 6th. And that made both his prior statements look much more uh, problematic and meant that anything subsequent against that background was problematic. Now, again, I want to keep going back to my point. I'm not saying the government should have banned it, but certainly as a platform owner or as an editor, uh, in the analogy I'm using, an editor could say, this person wants to use my newspaper, my television show, to inspire violence and shout fire in a crowded theater, and I don't want them to do it. And I think that's appropriate. And, you know, whether they're mind readers or not, it certainly seems to me reasonable. Thank you. So once again, uh, we polled you before you heard all the arguments, and we polled you again afterwards. We're just interested in seeing uh, how people might have, if at all, changed their minds. So on the first question before the debate, where the question was, should tech companies moderate misinformation that their users post? Before the debate, 75% said yes and 25% said no. After the second poll, 70% said yes uh, and 30% said no. (laughs) (laughs) On the question, does America need a governing body to regulate disinformation? Before the debate, 45% said yes, 55% said no. After the debate, 26% said yes, and 74% said no. And finally, on was Twitter right to ban Donald Trump? Before the debate, 59% said yes, and 41% no. After, on the second poll, 60% said yes, and 40%, 40% said no. All right, we are, there is no bow taken. Everybody um, won. Yeah. Well, no, it's not kid soccer, but... (laughs) So let's wrap it up. Uh, We really appreciated this, enjoyed it. Again, we appreciate our debaters and the Homeland Security Experts Group for having us here, uh, and our founder and chairman, Robert Rosencrantz, and Clea Connor, our CEO, and to you, our audience. And I'm John Donvan for Intelligence Squared. We will see you next time. Thank you, everybody, for tuning into this episode of Intelligence Squared, made possible by a generous grant from the Laura and Gary Lauder Venture Philanthropy Foundation. As a nonprofit, our work to combat extreme polarization through civil and respectful debate is generously funded by listeners like you, by the Rosencrantz Foundation, and Friends of Intelligence Squared. Robert Rosencrantz is our chairman. Clea Connor is CEO. David Ariosto is head of editorial. Julia Melfi and Marlette Sandoval are our producers. Leah Matho is our consulting producer. Damon Whittemore and Kristen Muller are our radio producers. Andrew Lipson is director of production. Raven Baker is our events operations manager. And I'm your host, John Donvan. We'll see you next time.